You're listening to Two Guys Talking Wine with Michael Pincus and Andre Prue. Hello, Michael. Good morning, Andre. <laughs> I can't believe we're up this early. What are you talking about? I make fun of you for being an old man all the time. Like, you're in bed by, like, 7.30 p.m. and up by 5 a.m. Like, some sort of weird Ben Franklin fetishist. Well, actually, last yesterday I went out into the twilight hours and recorded a bunch of YouTube videos. All right. Where can and, people watch those? Oh, obviously my YouTube channel. Ta-da! Michael Pincus. And... Uh, uh, and then I, uh, I didn't have dinner till late, which means if I don't have dinner, if I have dinner late, you got to stay up later. So I was up, I was up late actually, surprisingly. I know. How late is late for you? I didn't get to bed till 1130. Oh, wow. Okay. You actually stayed up like a normal person. Anyways, yeah. the... like an actual human being. <laughs> uh, so I guess just a friendly reminder. If you want to watch Michael yell at a camera for two minutes, look up Michael Pincus on YouTube. Uh, and uh, the only thing that gets us up early in the morning is when we need to talk to someone on the other side of uh, of some ocean. We're joined by Diego Karate, uh, as in his, in his own words, from the Verona Mountains, the uh, export manager, but it sounds like he wears many hats uh, from a winery you uh, introduced me to last week called Pra. Am I saying that correct? Yes, yes I think that's how we, how we say it. Diego, of course, will... We'll jump in and tell us for, for sure. Um, as people know, Andre's um, uh, weakness is uh, is Italy. And two of the goals that we had for the podcast this year was to talk to more people from Italy to hopefully get Andre on board with Italian wine instead of his love for or his total love for French and uh, in Ontario. And, uh, and then Andre is supposed to up uh, my knowledge and love of Chardonnay, which he has not done uh diego welcome good morning how are you or good afternoon in your case uh thank you guys for having me um good morning here is actually 1 p.m uh and yeah it, it's a great day in verona actually i'm at the winery right now and it's, uh, it's the first really warm week of the summer oh wow uh, so, yeah yeah no uh, so far i mean the the, the weather has been quite gentle with us uh, this is the first week where we are actually really, it's uh, like over 35 degrees. So yeah, definitely nice day, but it's getting hot. You know, I, I think so. when you work in the wine business, the weather is one of the things that's of uh, extra interest. I know in Ontario, once again, we had a slightly cooler and later start to spring, but I think the vineyards here have caught up. Uh, what has the weather been like in, in Verona and how has it impacted the uh, grape growing season there so far? Yeah, consider that we are coming, you know, we had like a year and a half with the really low rainfall. Uh, so we definitely had like uh, a May, June with a lot of rain, uh, but really a lot. And we still, I mean, the last rain was the last weekend. So uh, fortunately, this was really good for the vineyards. I mean, we have a lot of vegetation now. It's very green. If I think about, you know, Last July 2022, this time it was uh, super dry and it was really, you could see the, you know, the, the grass was uh, totally burned and dry. And now it's actually great. It's the first, but it's normal, I mean, to be now that uh, this temperature, you know, we are in a continental area. So, uh, so far we really can't complain, let's say. So the main problem, this vintage, it looks like our Peronospera and Oidio for the vines, so you have to be 
very careful now, I mean, in this period, you know, to in order to avoid the uh, peronospora and pests, especially if you farm organic, of course. So, Diego, just for, um, just for Andre, why don't we uh, tell him where you are in Italy, um, where you're situated, and what, uh, I guess, what is made in your area? I love how you're assuming the listeners know all of these things, and it's just for me that you're saying these things. <laughs> well, he's speaking to you, Andre. So we're trying to we're trying to educate you, and hopefully, in the process, we'll educate everybody else. Okay, <laughs> please, Diego. <laughs> okay, Andre, I will try to be very clear. And <laughs> I'm pulling up Google Maps. Yes. Speak, speak slowly, Diego. Please. Yeah, let's speak slowly for you. <laughs> just kidding. Anyway, I mean, the winery Pra uh, is uh, in Monteforte d'Alpona. So uh, we are in a little town in the eastern side of Verona. Uh, especially we are in the heart of the classical region of Suave. So we are, uh, Suave, of course, is one of the white wine uh, uh, areas, the most traditional ones from the northeast of Italy. Um, so yeah, we are actually in the just next to the volcanic hills of the classical region of Suave. Uh, right now, I'm at the winery. Uh, the Pra family is definitely traditionally from this uh, little medieval town. And when we talk about Suave, we speak, we talk especially about the two little medieval towns that are the town of Suave, which gives the name to the region, and the town of uh, Monteforte del Pone, which is where we, we are located. So we are, let's say, Suave, you know, Verona is in the northeast. The north of the city is all mountains. So we, we really, in a short distance, we go up to from uh, 40 up to 2,000 meters above the sea level. So we we have in the north of the city the first Alps and the limit with the Trentino region. And the southern side of Verona is all flat. It's all flat land. So... Uh, we in the let's say that Suave we have hills that uh, goes uh, uh, up to 300 400 meters above the sea level maximum. Okay, we'll look it up on on the map, Michael. Now what? Okay, so since we're talking uh, Suave and um, uh, Andre and I did taste the the wines that we uh, that we were get, we did our homework. Uh, not this early in the morning, obviously, but we did do our homework in advance. Uh, and I think we tasted the 2021 Auto. Yes, I, we Would I be correct that it's Auto? Yes. And uh, Diego, where, where does the wine take the name Auto from, first of all? Well, first of all, yeah, that's a good question. Auto was the dog of Graziano, is actually. So it's not the it. number eight. It's a, it's a dog. So you might see on the back label, there is a little picture of the dog and... Graziano felt in love with the border collies a long time ago. And he had this border collie Otto for 15 years, uh, till 2013 when he passed. Now we have a new one. But before that, let's say that still 2012 uh, was just a Suave Classic on the label. It took the name Otto after, after the dog. So it's just for, yeah. For this was the the reason. Let's say we also needed also to give this one his own identity, and uh, really Graziano spends like uh, twenty four hours a day with a dog. So, and you know, uh, he loves dog, and he he decided to give the one his name. I, I'm was it, was I it just a dog to... that would would eat grapes as well, or it was it just um, <laughs> they just uh, followed it around in the vineyard? 
Of course. <laughs> no, I'm just kidding. Well, <laughs> I think he was just a great companion. I mean, uh, Graciano spent days going around the vineyards here in Suave, so, and the dog is always with him, so. That's we had a we had a winemaker here in Ontario who knew it was time to pick his Chardonnay grapes when his dog would start eating them. So, oh, really? uh, yeah. So that's why I was asking, did he eat the grapes as well? So, so the uh, the Otto is a is a Suave Classico. Yeah, and I actually have another question and, uh, about. I have a question about about Otto. He said he's a Border Collie. Sorry, I've just been fascinated by this because um, I have a, a a beloved dog who's getting a little old. And uh, I recently learned he's a pug cross, and I'm still just amused by this, that the Italian word for pug is uh, Carlita. Is that it? Okay, you know. Little little Carl. Uh, I'm just wondering what the Italian word for border collie is and if it's as amusing as that. (laughs) No, it's, uh, I mean, border collie, I mean, we, we had this name because it's a breed of dog that came in Italy, I think, a little bit later. So we have a local, I mean, it's cane pastore. So, so Shepherd, I think, is the the kind. But Border Collie is a really specific breed that we don't <laughs> have a translation. So Graziano, he used to travel around the states, and he he had this friend that in 2001 in Walla Walla in Oregon was uh, basically running his own farm with uh, two Border Collies and. Graziano felt in love with this breed, and when he came back to Italy, he found a way to buy one. In 2001, it was, uh, 1998, I think, it was 1998. And so he, he bought this dog, and they stayed together for 15 years. So uh, it was a really long story, uh, but yeah, he really, uh, you know, he was really attached to this dog, and they really spent uh, all the old time together, but... Again, back to your question. Well. There's no retranslation really to that. I I definitely relate to being attached to uh, attached to the dogs. I think it's a fantastic tribute when you're able to name something, especially a wine, after them. Um, so yes, it was a Suave Classico. Um, right. I have yeah. had some Suave in the past, but certainly not enough to understand what is typical. I know for me, in my experience, the stuff that's often been um, sent to me for review, or Michael, you know, I've had a chance to taste at the uh, LCBO tasting room before they hated Canadian journalists. Um, it's kind of bright, vibrant, really crisp, mineral, um, easy drinking in the summer. I'm taking a look at the photo of the uh, wines that we tasted last week. The weather in Ontario has been a little nicer, a little longer than it has been in Italy. So we're looking at some beautiful sweaty bottles the day that we tasted it. And honestly, I think that bottle had a hole in the bottom of it because we drank it very quickly in the evening when it was still about 28, 29 degrees Celsius. And um, yeah, uh, I was smoking some fish that night. It was. It, was, it went very well with the fish. Um, so as is usually the case in, uh, in Italy... Suave is probably not the grape variety. So the grape variety of Suave is, Diego? Is a Garganega. So <laughs> as you know, in Italy, we have hundreds kind of grapes. Garganega is not maybe the easiest to pronounce. Uh, but, it's, but it's fun to say. <laughs> but that's the name of the grape. So, uh, of course, when we talk about Suave, the main grape of the region is Garganega. Uh, Garganega is a, a great uh, grape varietal that is not really, which is not super aromatic, 
I will compare for some reason Garganega uh, as a grape varietal to Chardonnay in some ways because it's just a grape that is uh, gives its best when it's planted in you know in, in the best place. Um, when Garganega is farming flatland, fertile soil, it doesn't really give very interesting wines. So the best wines from Garganega are probably from the poor, uh, from the hills, so definitely. And from volcanic or limestone calcareous soil, so poor soil. And it's a variety that definitely expre- expressed the terroir. Uh, so uh, that's why it makes sense to have a cruise, a single vineyard, the so-called UGA uh, in Italy. Uh, in Suave, because definitely it's a variety that really uh, shows and expresses the, the terroir. Uh, by law, Suave must be at least a 70% Garganega. It can be up to 100%, but uh, let's say that Graziano and Pra, we are definitely focused on the variety, like in this uh, in pure Garganega, so 100% at least on three of the fourth, or the fourth Suaves that we make. And uh, Otto is definitely 100% Organica. And let's say that is the fresher expression of these grapes from the volcanic uh, terroir. Uh, as Pra, we own the vineyards only on the hills of Suave in the Classico. And when we talk about Classico, we talk about the hills of Suave. So they are mostly volcanic soil because these hills were generated by uh, volcanic eruptions that happened under the sea level millions years ago. So uh, we have really old uh, hills, uh, old is an old volcanic region. Uh, if you look at the shape of the hills, it might you know recall volcanoes. And uh, especially when you go up on the hills, the more you uh, aim to the top, and the top is more like a rocky basaltic uh, uh, soil, uh, which gives even more of the salty mineral notes that you find in a, in a Suave, which is uh, farmed in this place. When you farm Garganega in a, you know, in a more fertile soil with a different kind of soil, maybe you wouldn't get this uh, salty mineral, um, uh, you know, expression in the wine, definitely. So definitely Suave is the wine that can be, uh, can be, you know, different and also price-wise, you can find Suave at very different price level on the shelf. So people might be uh, aware and conscious of the Suave that they're tasting because Suave can be really high quality and really low quality at the same time. All right, Diego. So, I don't. I don't think I have anything to follow. That was such a detailed answer about Garganega and the Suave grape and. <laughs> I think the thing that I love is um, for a lot of people who are like me, contextualizing it and comparing it to, to Chardonnay is really fantastic. You painted a really great picture. The good news about tasting a wine like this was that Michael didn't have the prices of the bottles. So we were able to just go in taste blind, decide whether we liked the wine or not. And I definitely liked this wine. Uh, my question for you, because you talked about the quality and the price varying from the region. How much does this wine cost if I come and visit you in Italy and I want to buy it from uh, Inoteca or uh, I don't know if your brand is big enough that it's in grocery stores. How much does it generally cost in the market? So starting from uh, the first Suave that we make, which is actually the Otto, uh, which is a little bit the the main part of our production. We are not a big winery, but let's say that... uh, uh, Otto is a, a bottle that you can buy for 13 or 14 euros, uh, maybe 12 to 14, let's say. Uh, 
Okay. Uh, and at the same time, you can find Suave and H Suave for much higher price points as well. Um, or maybe selections or longer finding and reserva with the, uh, let's say that now it's Suave nowadays there are, you know, 20, 25 and more producers, more producers that can really give uh, uh, really high quality products from Suave. And also wines that you can have definitely age for a really long time, which is something that, uh, you know, sometimes Suave can be considered a wine, you know, that has a, like a one year shelf price, shelf uh, life, you know, that uh, you buy for very cheap uh, uh, but uh, what, you know, we are focusing on as a high-quality winery is definitely also uh, how Suave can, and the most interesting Suave definitely are the ones that has more more years and the, the wines that has more age. Uh, of course, now we picked Otto, which is a 2021, which is a great example, but uh, uh, trust me, the more time you can give the bottle, uh, the better. Was it just all stainless steel or was there lease stirring, oak involved? How was the wine made? So the wine, let's say, is uh, uh, six months uh, in stainless steel tank. So we do, cold, uh, let's say, starting from the beginning, we own vineyards on six different UGA on the hills, so six different crews. Uh, now we have an official list uh, in Suave uh, that lists all the crew of the single vineyards that are coming from the uh, classical region. And we own vineyards on six of those. Uh, we vinified each crew separately. And let's say that Otto is the blend, uh, is the final blend uh, of Organica. So uh, six months of stainless steel tank. Uh, well, the wine stays in contact with the fine leaves. Uh, the old time, and let's say we start to release the wine uh, uh, in uh, March, April, from the winery. And yes, call the fermentation 13 degrees in order to preserve the aromas, the aromatics, the flavors. So usually Garganega uh, and uh, Suave Otto, you uh, you gave quite a good description of the wine. So uh, I would add the citrusy, uh, lemon skin, it's quite fruity, but... Uh, white fruit, white flowers, uh, very minerals and salt and sapid and crispy. So, um, yeah, let's say that Otto is the fresher expression of Garganega, but definitely keeps uh, his own complexity and is uh, a bottle that, you know, definitely you can drink uh, within, we, we tasted it after 10 years very, uh, with great results. Oh, interesting. Well, so, so what Andre, did- we, our notes here that we, uh, we took, and I think I am the keeper of the notes today, uh, I know we got some green apples, so that kind of falls into that, you know, almost citrusy category. Uh, we also uh, were, were talking about a, a nice creamy texture that the wine had, as well as that nice, you know, finish of acidity. But through the through the mid palate, it had a really nice creamy texture, which made us both think that it was on some lees. And so you you've uh, you've you've added that it was on fine lees for six months. So that kind of that's our the creamy texture that we got, Andre, or malolactic fermentation. Uh, no, no malolactic. Okay. We, I mean, there's a trend in Suave, of course. That you know, it's just like uh, we were mentioning Chardonnay. We, we, you know, producer can play quite a lot with winemaking techniques. <laughs> we don't do malolactic. We try to avoid it. I mean, we, of course, with temperature, but we, <laughs> in all our Suaves, we, yeah, we avoid malolactic. You, you did, to- you did use a keyword there. You said you try to avoid it. Uh, because I know from experience, especially in like a hot vintage, uh, like I run a little 
one company here in Ontario where our uh, rosé spontaneously underwent malolactic fermentation and we ended up having to taste it and it tasted good after the malolactic, but we also try to avoid it here too. Right, right. I mean, now we, of course, we, the technology uh, at the winery, especially still, still time where you can, uh, uh, of course, manage the temperature and control the temperature. Gotcha. Uh, it's, uh, it's easier, of course, to, uh, to manage that. Um, but definitely the aim, let's say that in all our suaves and Graziano is definitely more in the, his style is really to keep this uh, crispiness. Uh, keeping also a little bit of the CO2 from the fermentation. So keep a wine very lively, fresh, mineral. Uh, this will be our aim. And then, of course, there are other producers and other styles of Suave where you find more commonly the malolactic uh, uh, notes. Now, what does uh, a bottle of Pra Auto taste like after uh, 10 years? You said you'd recently uh, tasted some of the wines you've held for 10 years. Yeah, it's, it's very interesting. We, well, we... You know, now we, first of all, we are great. Uh, we, we support a lot of the screw cup uh, as a, a closure. And we think uh, also screw cup helps in, the, in this way. Uh, if you look at the bottle of Suave Otto, we use a, a screw cup, really high quality screw cup that allows some microoxygenation over the years, but really low. So a bottle of Otto after 10, 12 years, I mean, we the first vintage we uh, with Skooker was 2010. Uh, usually Garganega is a variety that really developed this uh, petrol note uh, to the nose, which is very interesting. There's a smoky stone petrol note, uh, a little bit of the more like a stone fruit, uh, nut, nutty aroma. Um, so yeah, definitely Garganega is maybe one of the four white Italian grape variety with the best aging potential. And this is something that not everybody knows, but uh, it's starting also a kind of trend in this way. And we, we are definitely selling more and more of the back vintages of our single vineyards. And it's something that is growing step by step. I hope in the future you will see more Suaves with age because there are definitely great uh, examples from several wineries. So Diego, I, I found it very interesting when uh, when we were trying the wine that it was under screw cap. Um, I didn't know that uh, that Italy allowed a lot of screw cap, but what are the regulations on screw cap for, let's say, Suave? And then if you know for other areas within Italy, um, yeah, I'm going to stop there. Go ahead. Yeah, yeah, that's a, that's a good question. That's a really good question. We, you know... Graziano, in this way, you know, he's a classic and very he's considered a very classic suave producer because he's a very historical one and one of the pioneers of the high quality suaves from the eighties. And but he's been also uh, an innovator, uh, so he likes new things, and he's still today. I think he's more an innovator than younger people. I would say sometimes. And he also with the consortium, we, in the past, I mean, till 2008, 2005, uh, in Suave, it was not possible to put screw cap on the, on a Suave dock. So not on a Suave. After that, uh, Graziano has been fighting also in this way and uh, trying, you know, to convince people that this is actually a closure that can help this wine also to express itself with no interference over the years. Uh, till 2015, uh, Suave, uh, it was not possible to put the Suave Classic on the label. Uh, 
uh, when uh, the wine has the skew cap, had the skew cap. So let's say that in Suave, now you can put skew cap also in Suave Classico, but uh, it's being part of a, you know, of an evolution of, uh, of uh, fights and discussions. At the same time, of course, there are many denominations in Italy, DOC, DOCG, where you can't find, use the screw cap. Uh, for example, nearby, we also are part of the Valpolicella. We are also part of the Valpolicella consortium. We make Amarone. Uh, Amarone, Amarone is not possible to put screw cap. You have, you must put cork. And so, uh, each region, each wine region has, uh, uh, his own, uh, his uh, consortium, each consortium has a different regulation about skew cap enclosures. Um, let's say that ISO have at least an hour a day we can uh, use the skew cap, and we are happy with that because one of our like a drastic decision that we took the, this year in 2023 is to turn the all uh, our all uh, uh, white wines production, so the suave production into skew cap uh, as a closure. So we are not using cork. Uh, uh, any longer on our wines. Well, there we go. I mean, that's um, a perfect way. As any, you mentioned that you're also part of the Valpolicella uh, DOC, and uh, we had a chance to taste uh, Morandina as well, the 2021 Valpolicella. Um, it was another one. It was uh, light, uh, great acid backbone, still kind of earthy and smoky on the mid palate. Um, I think my notes say something along the lines of uh, pizza, pasta. Like I said, this was really begging to be paired with food. Um, Michael? Uh, uh, we also noted sour cherry and raspberry fruit, some red currant. Uh, what we really liked about this wine was that great acidity, and that's what you know we thought it would pair really well with, with food. Uh, no offense, Andre. I don't think it it went with your with your trout that night. The suave was a much better better pairing, 100%. but it was a nice after after dinner kind of uh, sipper uh, at that. Well, I mean, it was uh, it so was, Diego. Tell us it was tell us a little bit about. The, oh, sorry. I was going to say it was uh, it was fascinating to uh, to open a bottle of wine like that on a hot day in a backyard and just to have a lighter expression. Because when I think of Valpolicella, you know, I think Canadians probably reach for the a bottle of Reposto or Amarone when the months get a little bit colder. You know, it can be a bit of a challenge to sit in the backyard on a hot day with a bottle of 15 and a 16% uh, Amarone. So it was nice to have uh, a different wine from the region that was a little easier to drink on a, on a hot day. Um, I don't know, Diego, if you want to talk a little bit about the Valpolicella and the the maybe not the best way i don't think that's a, a fair way to do it but how do the italians drink wines from valpolicella let's let's do that excuse me how do the italian drinks yeah like when oh, like diego what did they them, with them out andre no with but i mean but i mean in, but i mean you do. but i mean in general like kind of the bigger the bigger thing cuz i know one thing we talk about on the podcast is like like food pairings are a little subjective and like i know right. obviously what what your diet is, Diego, oh, okay. is going to be very different okay. than ours, but also like the time of year, uh, like the circumstances around when you open it. Like, you know, Valpolicella, uh, Amarone is a very popular wine to talk about for Michael right. and I as um, more consumer oriented journalists, specifically around the holidays. It's on everybody's like 
this is a great Christmas gift. This is a great like wine opener on the New Year's when people spend a little bit more money. But I'm just curious if in Italy, like um, an Amarone is something that's a little bit more accessible or consumed a little bit more regularly. On, and not, not just like what you're pairing with, but like how do Italians drink Valpolicella wines? Right. I mean, let's say, of course, as you know, well, Valpolicella, we have, uh, I would say, four or five uh, different wines uh, made from the from the same grapes, as you know, Valpolicella is always a blend, um, a blend of uh, three, four grapes varietal usually. Uh, we drink, uh, we have Valpolicella, which is, of course, uh, as uh, uh, the wine that you just tasted, I mean, from us, it's uh, supposed to be uh, the, the fresher. Usually Valpolicella tends to be fruity, uh, fruity and spicy because uh, it depends really on the blend and on the region where you uh, farm the grapes. Um, so it's a wine that can be, it can go from aperitif in the old times. It was just the part of the daily consumptions, uh, of, uh, of people. So, uh, so you used to drink this wine so with food, I mean, lunch, dinner, uh, Valpolicella, let's say being the most accessible one is the wine that you drink the most, but also, also like an aperitif. I mean, it really depends on the, on the season, maybe, at winter time, you might enjoy more, of course, a glass of Valpolicella. In summertime, you might enjoy more a glass of Suave. Uh, uh, if we go up to Ripasso, Ripasso, you need then some food, definitely. Uh, we have a lot, of, a lot of local dishes in Verona that are quite powerful because we are just next to the mountains. So we have really rich food and the, the traditional uh, cuisine is really based on... Uh, uh, on cheese and meat, cow meat, donkey meat, horse meat. We have a lot of really great traditional dishes. Um, and the ripasso starts to be already one you might enjoy with uh, with food, uh, being a little bit more structured and powerful. Uh, over that, Amarone, yes, Amarone is the one you drink uh, by occasion. Uh, Amarone is not right, really uh, everyday wine. I mean, it's, uh, it's a wine, you know, for uh, maybe... You know, you have a dinner with your friends so for, for some reason. You open a bottle of Amarone. We are definitely, you know, the trend, the, the international, you know, Amarone is a wine that took uh, kind of an international trend uh, because Amarone is a wine that also we export a lot. Uh, I can't say that, uh, you know, we drink uh, uh, maybe uh, my parents, honestly, maybe drink more the sweet wine Rezzotto rather than Amarone uh, usually. So Amarone is very powerful, it's very rich, it's a wine that, uh, um, you know, we are trying to give a wine that, by the way, you definitely can enjoy with food, but sometimes Amarone, you know, uh, can be a little bit sweet, can be a little bit, uh, you know, too rich sometimes. Uh, nowadays, let's say that the trend is definitely to bring back Amarone to the table. So uh, to make of Amarone wine, a powerful wine that, by the way, you can... Uh, uh, drink with the meat. You can drink, of course, with the brasato, with the nosso with the peara. We have a lot of really rich dishes, but definitely not uh, very often at uh, summertime. I mean, it's definitely more a wine that you would enjoy. I mean, in the in the fall or at winter. So this is a little bit also how locally we we drink these wines. I mean, um, for sure, Amarone. Let's say that half of the Amarone, or maybe more. I can't say really the numbers, but uh, is exported. Uh, so um, 
Yeah, and we are trying actually also, this is something that also the producer we are talking about. Our Amarone is definitely, Graziano is not really uh, a super historical uh, Valpolicella producer. We approached Valpolicella in 2001. Mm. Uh, we started with the rest in 2006. First vintage for our rest and our vineyards are in maybe the F- Morandina is the name of Valpolicella, but it's also the name of the crew of the place where we planted the vines in 2001. And uh, this maybe is in the eastern side of Valpolicella on the highest elevation on calcaric uh, white limestone soil. And it definitely gives a Valpolicella more of a style with, uh, as you just said, uh, uh, Michael, uh, sa- uh, excuse me, Andre, uh, sour cherry. Um, you know, this pepper spice uh, that sometimes is very typical to find in our wines. Uh, so very dry style. So we are also, the aim uh, is also, you know, Amarone cannot be a light wine, but uh, also the aim is, by the way, to make Amarone as a, you know, uh, a great wine of Valpolicella, also one you can definitely be back and pair with uh, with food. So Andre, that's your, your crash course in the reds of uh, Valpolicella. Um, I know that when I when I when I got my start uh, in in wine, uh, Valpolicella was always uh, just straight Valpolicella uh, was a wine I always always enjoyed to drink, and then uh, then learned about Ripasso and Amarone as we went. Uh, Andre, um, uh, well, I, then- I always like always ch- or not always, but sometimes chill. Uh, just uh, just regular Valpolicella, as I find it to be, you know, a really uh, nice wine uh, or a start like a starter red for people you know those who don't want to or say they don't like red Valpolicella to me is one of those wines that you you know take out and go look you'll like this because it's you know you can chill it and it's it's more approachable I mean it was it was a the thing about Valpolicella on its own and I, I don't have a ton of experience with it as we like to point out on this podcast all the time the thing that I found fascinating about it was given the, the circumstances under which we were drinking it, like the alcohol was a little lower and the wine is almost um, a contradiction on the palate because like the acids are really light and lifted on the back palate, but like the, the density of the fruit flavors, even with the sour cherry was still quite like concentrated in the, in the middle, you know, it was almost like a black hole where like this wine is incredibly dense and heavy in the middle and it moves to all the light trying to escape on the outside, which I know you said it didn't go great with the smoked fish. And I, I agree with that, but like this would have been a really easy wine to drink had we had like something simple, simpler, like uh, like maybe some kebabs or uh, like just skewers of grilled meat and simple salad on the side. Um, and, you know, I, I still think it wouldn't have completely clobbered like a simple salad with a nice vinaigrette, have the acids pair out, let the fruit flavors really soar. Um yeah, it was, just, and I mean, it's just fascinating to hear as as well. Now you said Recioto. Do you make? Does your winery make Recioto? We make a Recioto di Soave from Garganega. Uh, oh, cool! Being a very traditional Soave producer, we make the sweet wine from the region. So Recioto can be made in two regions: Soave and Valpolicella. So we, of course, we we make the sweet one from Soave. Um, but uh, yeah, one of the most traditional, I mean, talking about, you know, my parents and the local people in Valpolicella, yeah, Recioto is definitely, you know, a very typical and classic wine that locally we drink quite a lot. Then uh, sweet wines usually are 
little bit a tougher sale, <laughs> usually, even if they're really traditional and historical from, from each region. And well, a tougher sell for, for whom? Like, is the older generation still drinking it, or is it just a tougher sell to the new generation? Uh, you can see that we work with restaurants, maybe, gotcha. all over the world, you know, we work with restaurants, and you remember the last time you bought a bottle of sweet wine at the restaurants, you know, as soon as it's I don't, not... I don't like, think I ever have. Yeah, exactly. I mean, it's a, it's a pity because, uh, you know, you're in the end of the meal and sometimes it's just too much. It should be maybe a glass, of course. A glass of uh, sweet wine is, uh, is amazing in the end of the meal. But, uh, um, you know, there are a lot of sweet wines all over the world. And uh, let's say that we mostly drink our own uh, locally. And we actually, at this point, we only make a 3,000 half bottles of the Ricciotto. Uh, which is, of course, you know, it's just the way, you know, we, we like to keep the tradition, but it's not really the wine you will make uh, uh, tons of sales. Oh, no, I, 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 love, I, like, I like the whole idea of um, maintaining tradition, because, I mean, it's, it's one thing, like, I think Michael and I, we've talked about it, it, it quite a bit. It's one of the great frustrations as um, people who live in a wine-growing region of Ontario. Uh, when we travel internationally, the Canadian reputation really is tied to ice wine. And... Exactly. Um, you know, the the problem with that is we do make really great, especially Chardonnay, Pinot Noir down here in Ontario, but it's still everywhere you go around the world. It's ice wine, ice wine, ice wine. And I think we're finally seeing the domestic market pulling back on that. But I think if we are ever going to look back 100 years from now, the, the uh, winemaking that helped establish Ontario as a region... Uh, because we are one of the only regions that do get cold enough to make ice wine every year, every single vintage. I don't think I'd ever want to see that um, heritage disappear. Like maintaining tradition is is important, and there are always going to be people who love it. But um, you know, Michael and I still do joke as well that there's probably a bottle of that original ice wine from 1973 that's still being regifted to this day because. Not, when do people drink these wines? It's not as often, not very often. It, it, it is it is Canada's most regifted wine. That's what it is. You just get a <laughs> bottle and you'll give it away to somebody, and they probably give it away, and so on and so forth. I, I like to kid Andre that it's like fruitcake, but you know Andre likes fruitcake. I do like fruitcake. I also I also like I also like ice wine as well. Uh, but I, I mean, I was just curious about about Recioto because I had a winemaker in in Niagara bring that. This is the first time I've heard uh, somebody from Valpolicella, who makes one in Valpolicella, bring it up. The thing that I do love, though, because Michael and I, like, we both really enjoy travel uh, and, and doing enotourism. And this is why I think, you know, rather than just sitting to you, Diego, because you, you travel the world, you work in lots of markets, and I'm sure you can answer the question about what your wines could pair with, knowing what locals eat. You probably have a good idea that Canadians eat differently than Italians. It's why I asked you about uh, the way you would drink them in Italy is... Uh, I, I think the context is important for enjoying wines, but also if you get a chance to travel when you can travel like the locals. So you've uh, you've given me something to add to my list about heading to Verona and finding some Recioto as well as enjoying some of the Amarone with uh, some donkey meat, which is something I've never eaten. Horse meat is a, a little harder to come by, but something that I've had. Michael, have you had donkey in any of your travels? I, I have not, but I've had pork butt, so... <laughs> it's, a, it's a long yeah, way to go. I, mean, I know that sometimes you know for some people get you know are horrified you know to the idea to eat you know horse meat but uh, it's actually part of the, the local dishes also the donkey they're both 
amazing and there are many traditional restaurants to really still keep the tradition in Verona that I can suggest of course whenever you guys want to want to come and and visit the region I mean there's uh, definitely a lot like uh, in every place in Italy a lot of really traditional local cuisine I I I work now in Suave you know it's now been 13 years maybe but I come more from uh, the uh, Verona actually from the northern part of the city as you said from the mountains and I still find here in Suave which is in the in between Verona and Vicenza uh, local dishes that I haven't tasted uh, before actually so so yeah definitely there's a lot it's I, I you get you get, rural? you get Cingale there as well correct Oh yeah, yeah, cinghiale. But let's say cinghiale, you find it more like uh, in different areas. But yeah, cinghiale, wild boar is, uh, yeah. Especially nowadays, there's so there are so many here on the mountains. So yeah. sorry, cinghiale is a wild boar. It is yeah. okay. Definitely, like one of the most delicious of the of the the wild meats. Okay, I want to I want to roll back a, a little bit. It because um, we spent a lot of time talking about the suave, a little bit less about the the Valpolicella. I do think it's partly because it, it is summer, but I want to rewind a little bit. You mentioned quite a bit about volcanic soils. Yeah. And uh, I mean, volcanic soils is a very popular term in wine marketing these days, but I, I don't think it's without merit because when you take a look at the wines that are really proudly talking about volcanic soils, they are certainly a wine of a certain quality. If you're someone sitting in the car right now listening to two guys talking wine, what impact would you say that volcanic soils has on on your winemaking in general i know you've talked a bit about the minerality but um actually let me rephrase the question it's like how important are the volcanic soils to the quality of the suave compared to suave say from more in the foothills in the flatlands no definitely well uh well back to suave let's say that the volcanic hills uh, you know you have the top of the hills where i just say it's more like the rocky basalt if rocky stone where you find especially right now the nowadays that we are digging into further stasi about the single vineyards uh so different volcanic area in the classical uh, of suave so uh, we especially one of our wines is a blend from three volcanic areas um, so let's say this, the more you go to the top, the more you find this uh, sap, sap, the salt, the minerals. Uh, uh, when you find a little bit on the foothills, so there's more, a little bit more of the soil, of the volcanic soil gives more the structure. Uh, we also make one uh, suave from uh, calcaric and limestone soil, uh, actually. And what we see, you know, when we compare the wines is definitely um the uh, the body the structure that by the way and the the complexity uh, the citrus that are the volcanic soils maybe um uh, add to garganica gives to and this that the garganica expresses uh, definitely compared to a wine that is from the calcaric soil which is more maybe fine in the nose uh, a little bit more refined uh, a little bit lighter in the body uh, and uh, that expresses it's ready a little bit earlier than the ones that come from the volcanic terroir. Uh, so we are actually right now a day uh, in this past uh, four, five, six years digging into these uh, differences and uh, uh, studies about the old different regions in Suave that we we can uh, we can explore because we. Nowadays, we own uh, 40 hectares in Suave, 
and we have like uh, you know the smaller plots is like far four or five actors. So we have quite a uh, you know some vineyards and some land in each of the six actors that we are six uh, crews that we own. Um, some areas, especially on the top, La Frosca, for example, which is a suave where there are other producers that makes wine from Frosca. Uh, it's really the top of this hill with a lot of salt, mineral, um, uh, lemon, lemon skin, especially something that you find them more. Uh, while you go back to the Ponsara, which is a little bit lower side, you find more of the, uh, this white fruit, this apple. Uh, this uh, fuller body. Um, so, yeah, um, let's say nowadays we are trying to compare and to taste side by side, uh, you know, these wines uh, uh, constantly, and it's one of also our uh, projects for the future. Well, Diego, I appreciate you uh, answering all the questions and uh, giving a little bit more education on Valpolicella and Suave. And uh, a little bit of a crash course on the volcanic wines. Hopefully we see these wines in the market shortly. Um, it's always a pleasure to have a chance to discover something new. And uh, I'm not lying at all when I say you've definitely piqued my curiosity in terms of the enotourism to come and taste some of the local wines. I know you've been very upfront about what people drink and what the locals drink, but I'm not going to lie. I'm very curious about some of the sweet wines of the region and would love to see some of the tradition at some point. But I guess for now... We'll have to uh, enjoy doing this digitally over Google Meet. So thank you for giving us the time. Thank you, Andre. And I'm glad I could catch your curiosity. And I'm looking forward to show you a little bit more. I mean, uh, <laughs> thank you for having me and for waking up uh, that early this morning. It's early for Andre. It wasn't early for me. I'm, I'm usually <laughs> up early. So. Well, I've got All a right. baby now. Thank so you, I got a baby now. So this is normal getting up this early. All right. <laughs> Grazie, Michael. Thank you. And, Grazie, Diego. Uh, thank you for taking the attention of our on our wines today. So, Michael, I actually didn't realize that these wines were available at the Vine Agency. So, the vineagency.ca. They are not paying us to uh, appear on this podcast. These are wines that uh, you and I have done our journalistic due diligence to get our hands on. The uh, Auto Suave is twenty nine ninety five a bottle. The Morandina Valpolicella is $36.95 a bottle. It's sold by the case, 12 bottles per case. So if you are curious about these wines, you can get your hands on them. They also have the uh, Amarone della Valpolicella for $117 and a couple of other wines from the winery. But I guess we're focusing on... Um, I think it's great when you can start your entry level of your winery's portfolio at a price point like that. Yeah, I, I really like these wines. I uh, loved having Diego, and I loved what he uh, what he did, Andre, to bring you right into the Valpolicella region and give you the list of the wines that that are made there. Uh, that's you know one of the things as as somebody who goes on on like a, on wine tours, meaning I give the tour, um, I do get some questions about Valpolicella, and people are usually shocked that it's a blend and that it's it's a region and not a grape variety. So it's really interesting that he that he boiled that down to the three major types and then obviously threw in Recioto, which got you very Well, I was curious. I mean, but I mean, I, I did like how he answered the question, though. Um, like, like, it's something I'm just trying to be a little bit more more mindful of is, um, you know, I think a few years ago, if you go back to one of the older episodes of Two Guys Talking Wine, there's an episode called Wine and Food Pairings Are BS, where um, I still very much stand by 
the sentiment, but having had a chance to, uh, you know, have a wine and food show on 640 Toronto now and spend a little bit more time contextualizing and understanding that everybody's mouths work different, especially if they don't come from like a European cuisine background. It's just, I think, more interesting to hear how the locals drink the wine and try to import those habits our way. So, I mean, one thing that was, I guess, a little validating was hearing that the Italians drink Amarone the same way we do, and then the way we have talked about as journalists for years. Well, you know, I I was more focused on sweet wines in my head, so then when you <laughs> threw out Amarone at me, it threw me a little curveball there. Um, I went, when I was in France, I did a sweet wine dinner, which did not work at all as far as i was concerned yeah um, sweet wines are still are still tough for for pairings like i i that is one where i do have strong feelings on it just because of the classic like salt on sweet fat on fat like i still love doing ice wine and fried chicken i do love port um and I, I mean port's one where i have a hard time with pairings whatsoever although you know i'll give conrad edgebick this who tweeted this at me and i hate that he was right but conrad's usually right you know port and chocolate together but you know some of the lighter sweet stuff with hard cheeses and um, hard cheeses and charcuterie are really, you know, a really great match. And um, so now I'll I'll bounce back to the to the Amarone part of your uh, your question. It seems we're on different topics as we go. Um, Amarone has always been like a like a heavy meat kind of wine if you're going to pair it. Otherwise, it's like that after dinner. No, I get, I get that. I, I mean, I wasn't surprised by I wasn't surprised by Diego's answer, but it's the whole idea. Like when you're getting to the north of Italy, you are dealing with more meat-driven cuisine. Um, you know, I smoke brisket like six times a year. I'd be very happy to open in Amarone in late August with some smoked meat. Um, and, and I was just curious whether you know the 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 cuisine of the region would. Um, you know, factor in something like that. Like if you were doing like a whole porchetta or something, whether in the middle of the summer, that would be when you do it. Um, but Diego did, you know, admit that it's sort of a fall winter kind of wine for them. Right. Like I was just, I was just saying like, I wasn't, I wasn't really surprised. I wasn't really surprised by that, but it was just interesting to hear, hear that. I opened, I opened an Amarone up uh, not too long ago. It was a, an eight year old, nine year old bottle. And it was just at the tail end of spring, and I was like, it tastes good, but it would have probably tasted much better in six more months when it was colder out. <laughs> All right. On that note, I'm sure people are sick of hearing uh, the sound of our voice. I'm Andre Prue from underwinereview.ca. Follow me on social media at Andre Wine Review and support this podcast, podcast, uh, sorry, patreon.com slash two guys talking wine. That's with the number two. We appreciate the little bit of support that helps keep the wheels turning. And I'm Michael Pincus of MichaelPincusWineReview.com on most social medias as the great guy, including Threads. Oh, yeah. We are both on Threads, as it turns out. Uh, so is 100 million people as of the recording of this podcast, and I'm sure it'll double in size by the time this one comes out. Okay. Don't know why you oh, felt the need to do it? the shout-out. To... Didn't know why you felt the need to shout-out Threads, but okay. Well, I'm just... You know, you can now get off of Twitter if you want to, so. Okay, yeah, well, you know what? Usually it's good night. Uh, it is morning, but well, good night. Thanks for listening. Please subscribe to Two Guys Talking Wine on iTunes. Two Guys Talking Wine is produced by Jim Ray, Adam Duran, and Ken Little.